so that we see and understand the truth today. And then fire up our hearts with zeal, with faith, with action, so that we obey the truth and put it into practice too. And do both of these things so that our dear Lord Jesus will be more honoured in us, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Book of Daniel, Daniel 7. And the topic of these last chapters of Daniel, and we'll come back to them after New Year, is the kingdom of God, of heaven, and of Jesus the Messiah. And that's the same one king kingdom. There is only one kingdom. It has different names. It's the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's called those two things because in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew wrote for Jewish leaders and he avoided putting the name God, so he called it the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke write the same, the same things and report many of the same parables and there they called it the kingdom of God because they, didn't, they weren't trying to kind of be politically correct with Jewish readers. So it's the kingdom of the God of heaven and it's the kingdom which is now entrusted to Jesus the Messiah. Now in Daniel chapter 7 we jump back in time before chapter 5 it's a little difficult in some ways here Belshazzar in chapter 7 is in the first year as prince regent under the emperor Cyrus over Babylon in chapter 8 Belshazzar is in his third year and then, it's, then it goes on into Darius's reign but in chapter 5 Belshazzar's reign ends so um, why, is it, why is this jumping around? well here's the thing the first six chapters of Daniel vindicate his character and calling as a prophet. It's a, it's a, it's a narrative of example. Our topic going through the book of Daniel is living for God in a godless world. And that's exactly what Daniel and his three friends did. We only hear about them in their, 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 their work in, the, in the, the world courts. But that's what they did. And then in chapters 7 to 12, you've got the prophecies of Daniel. So actually... Um, this book is kind of the other way around to the way that Paul writes, usually writes one of his epistles. Paul sets out to begin with the principles, the, the doctrine, the, the statements of truth. You know, you have been raised with Christ. You're dead to sins and so on. And then he applies it and says, therefore, 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 therefore. Practical application. In Daniel, it's kind of the other way around. Here's the examples. Here's why. Here's how they lived. Here's why they lived like that. The last few chapters. And if we're thinking about the kingdom of God, here's the statements of the kingdom of God in chapter 6 to verse, in chapter 6 to, uh, 7 to 12. Some of the how we've looked at already in chapters 1 to 6. Now I thought foolishly that um, I'd just wrap up Daniel today and do all the rest, the rest of the chapters just in summary and then we'll move on and and I even said that to some people uh, as late as Friday night. And then, you know, one of those times when God wraps you across the knuckles or something like that, you think, he said, he kind of says, what? Um, sorry, what? Um, isn't all scripture profitable, David? Uh, yes. So why are you rushing through it? Uh, okay, sorry. So I've repented of my foolishness. <clears throat> and we're going to do Daniel 7 today and other chapters later. To sum up the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 7 to 12, these are the main points. God reigns as sovereign king. Kingdoms and empires will come and go, but his kingdom, founded in Jesus, or refounded in Jesus, will grow to fill the whole earth. There are detailed predictions in these chapters about the kingdoms from Daniel's time onwards. But the main point of all that detail is to give the countdown to the coming of Jesus Messiah, which was about four, no, 500 years after Daniel's time. Daniel is not about the second coming of Jesus, the end of the age, the, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment. It's about his, the timing of his coming, his life, his resurrection. I've, I've put those in the wrong order, haven't I? His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, incarnation. It's about that timing. So to repeat my, my last point there, <clears throat> when I was a lot younger, I only heard the view that the prophecies of Daniel leapt out way beyond his time to the end of the age and the second coming of Christ. 
That's still probably the predominant view among American evangelicals today, and in American evangelicalism, Christianity exports itself all over the world, so a lot of the rest of the world thinks like that because it came from there. But I came to understand that these prophecies, in fact, give a countdown clock to his first coming, and I'll show you that in January. Much of Daniel's prophecies point well beyond, well into the future beyond his time, but they do not necessarily point into our future. Prophecies come to pass. They are fulfilled. Prophecy may have been fulfilled in the succeeding years. But we've, many of us have grown up with a way of handling the Bible called futurism. It's all about us or after us. It's a very arrogant way of approaching the Bible, really. It's a basic mistake. Bible prophecy may have been fulfilled any time from the time the prophet gave it onwards. We need to pay attention to Bible history, then to the rest of human history, and check whether what has been prophesied as then has come to pass. Did it happen? To say that again, what lay in the future from the prophet's viewpoint may be now in our past. There's a lot of detail in these remaining chapters of Daniel, but they are primarily about what was then future to Daniel, the appearing of the Lord Jesus on earth, he's going to the cross, he's being raised from the dead, and he's being raised to kingdom, ascending and receiving his kingdom. Daniel, earlier on we've heard of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and how Daniel by the Holy Spirit understood them. Now it's in Daniel 7, it's Daniel who dreams. So I'm going to put a few headlines up on the screen just as we go along. We're not there yet. Daniel 7, I'm going to read it to you with a few interruptions. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel 2. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That great seas in the Bible are about Gentiles, Gentile nations. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from one another. By the way, Daniel's got a lot of parallels with Revelation, but we haven't got time to explore them yet. Daniel 7, the first beast, describes the Babylonian Empire, the empire of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and so on. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Verse 5, the empire of the Medes and Persians, pictured as the bear. Daniel 7, verse 5, suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. Next one, the Greek or Macedonian empire. The Greeks like to call it the Greek empire, but he was actually the king of Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece, uh, who uh, founded this empire. Um, that was Alexander the Great. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard. Alexander rampaged across the Asia as far as the northern territories of India and created an, an empire filling the, pretty much the then known world in ten years. If that's not running like a leopard, I don't know what is. This one was like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. Again, speed. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. When Alexander the Great died, his kingdom, his empire was divided into four parts because he had no heir. Then in chapter 7, uh, the Roman Empire. Have I got this in the wrong order? I've just taken it out. Okay, sorry. Daniel 7, it's the Roman Empire. After this I saw, <coughs> verse 7, in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible. You can't really describe it. It's just awful exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in people and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that before. It had ten horns, horns usually rulers. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And then in verse 9, we enter the throne room of heaven. <clears throat> Daniel, it seems, was caught up into the heavenly realm. I watched till thrones were put in place. 
and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels like a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousands, thousands, a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. There's not many places in Scripture that God the Father is pictured as having a human form. That's one of them. The throne of God is also his judgment seat, and the throne of heaven is also the war room of heaven. And the books being opened signifies, as it does in Revelation, that God is about to unfold part of his purpose. He's going to do something which he hasn't done before, but he's, he's planned it before, it's recorded, he's now going to do it. The books are open. It's time for action. It's like, the war, it's like the, the war room, and the plans are laid out. This is what's going to happen. Even while this momentous is going on in heaven, the wicked, the wicked empires are still raging and rampaging on the earth. So in verse 11 we read, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then we come to a very pivotable part of this chapter. Daniel 7, 13 to 14. The Son of Man enters heaven and receives the kingdom. I was watching in the night visions. and Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. I'm going to come back to those verses in just a few minutes. But notice, first of all, how parallel that is with Daniel 2. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a great statue, head of gold, Babylonian empire, chest of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, abdomen of bronze, the Greek Empire, legs and feet of iron, though the feet are mixed with clay, the Roman Empire. And at the end, and during the time of that fourth empire, during the time of the Roman Empire, a stone is thrown in and shatters the whole thing. And this is what it says in Daniel 2. In the days of those kings, the final kings of those empires, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of Jesus overcomes every kingdom, every nation. Now to go back to Daniel 7, Daniel responds to this revelation, as he does to a number of these prophecies, with a physical, gut-felt, physical response. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, this is still in the heavenly realm, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. I thought the Son of Man received the kingdom. Yes, but his people also receive the kingdom. And they will possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. But the fourth beast that Daniel saw is still troubling him. It's distressing him. It was terrible. So he says, then I wish to know the truth about the four beasts, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, but this teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, the Roman Empire firstly persecuted and destroyed the nation of Israel. And then later, 
or even before that, persecuted so as to destroy Christianity. Couldn't do so, but it tried through Nero. They were making war on the saints, prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. And the time came, listen again, for the saints to possess the kingdom. This is what the, the watchers said. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns of ten kings will arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He will be different from the first ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. The siege of Jerusalem lasted three and a half years. The persecution of Christians in Rome in the, in, under Nero lasted, guess how long? Three and a half years. But the court shall be seated. Heavenly court. Well, the, the, the court that rules over every other court. The throne room that rules over every other presidential or, or, or royal throne. And they will take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms of the whole earth shall be given to the people. Three times. Belongs to Jesus, given to his people the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the document. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled my My countenance changed. He was deeply affected by these things, but I kept the matter in my heart. I don't believe any of this chapter is a prophecy about our future. It concerns the kingdoms and empires that would overtake one another in the years preceding the coming of Jesus. And shortly after that, through to the, almost the end of the first century, the four empires came. And the appointed time came when Jesus appeared to us. The kingdom of Messiah Jesus will supersede and overthrow every other kingdom, not by national revolution, but by subversion. As in every nation, millions of people come to know Christ. There are nations on this earth which, as, as a nation, are in a... Are, are, you know, I was going to say sick. That means something else in modern English, doesn't it? Adam? <laughs> they're, they're in distress. Yeah, and yet the numbers of people who are becoming Christians in that nation is going through the roof. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is? Iran. Figure that one out. Do you know the place where there's, where there's almost forty percent people who are now evangelical Christians? Brazil. It's not a wonderful place. It's you know it's still nationally it's a mess, but God is at work and His kingdom is subverting the kingdoms of the world. His people need to trust him through great geopolitical changes and even through their own particular trials and difficulties and even persecutions. For in the end, we will inherit his eternal kingdom. Amen. It's stated three times in this chapter. Let me go back to the middle of the chapter and focus on those verses about the Son of Man. I'll put them up on the screen this time. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice where he came. He didn't come from, heaven, come from heaven to earth. He comes from earth to heaven. He comes in before the Ancient of Days. And he's presented before him. And then to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations and peoples and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom. When did that start? At his resurrection. Because guess what Jesus said when he was raised from the dead? That was sometime later when he said it, just before he went back to the Father and left the disciples, for, you know, for, for good, for the time being. He stood before them and said what? Matthew 24. All, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. If that isn't kingdom, I don't know what is. He has all authority. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is a pivotal prophecy. Jesus refers to it many times. When Jesus was saying, I, the son of man, the Jewish authorities picked up on that. They knew he was referring to Daniel. He was claiming to be the person seen here 500 years beforehand in the prophecies of Daniel. They understood that. It wasn't, I'm just, a, I'm just an ordinary bard, I'm just a son of man. I'm that son of man. 
They understood that. The coming of Messiah in Daniel 7 here is not the second coming, it's about his ascension. He came up to the Ancient of Days, was given the kingdom. In one of the parables of Jesus, he spoke of a prince going away to receive his kingdom and then coming back to hold his servants accountable. Luke 19. Jesus is telling it in a story. I'm going away, going to receive my kingdom, then I'm going to come back. When some people have read the Bible and seen the word coming connected to the Lord Jesus, they only think of the second coming, the end of the age, the last day. You know, I believe the Lord will return as every Orthodox Christian and Christian creed states. Okay? But these verses are not about the second coming. Think about it, this trajectory of the Lord Jesus. He came from heaven to earth, from the Father to us. Incarnation, made flesh. Jesus gained a human name and he still is a human being. He still is the man Christ Jesus. He then went back to heaven from us. From our view, he went back, but from heaven's view, he came back to the Father and received his kingdom in his ascension. And the dying thief was absolutely right when he said, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, he's looking at a dying man next to him and he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, oh yeah, when that happens, I'll remember you. He says, no, today, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The kingdom was going to start when Jesus rose from the dead. He will come back from heaven to earth. He's appearing, the Greek word parousia we looked at in Thessalonians. He will come to complete his kingdom by raising the dead, judging the world, and renewing the heavens and the earth by a fiery recreation. Let's go to when Jesus was being tried by the Sanhedrin, Mark 14, simple version there. He's on trial for his life before the Jewish authorities, the Jerusalem authorities. The high priest says to him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying there, first of all, all authority in heaven and earth is going to be given to him. And you better be careful because when the Son of, if the Son of Man comes to bring judgment, the Son of Man comes to hold you accountable, you're going to be in a whole heap of trouble, aren't you? In the same way that the, the, the Lord Yahweh had uh, in the Old Testament history, brought judgment, chastisement to the people of Israel and to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to do it again. That's what he's saying to the Jerusalem authorities there. The kingdom of Jesus cannot be overthrown. It can be resisted, but it will advance because it's driven by his almighty power, not just by human intelligence and energy. By the way, I'm going to spoil another scripture for you. For some of you. When Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, or in some Bibles, the gates of hell. That phrase, the gates of Hades, does not refer to the devil and the powers of darkness. It's not a new phrase. In the Old Testament, you can read about the gates of death and the gates of Sheol, which is also translated as hell sometimes. And Sheol, in the Old Testament, Hades' ingestment is not the works of the devil. It's actually death. It's the grave. When Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, this is what he was saying very simply, I will build my church and death won't stop me. Death itself won't stop me. Why? Because he rose from the dead. That's exactly what that verse means. (laughs) If death couldn't stop him, nothing will. Let me remind you of the verses at the end of Daniel 7 as well. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. We will inherit the kingdom of God, but we do not have it all now yet. I know you've heard this many times before. We live in the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. That's why some of us got sick. 
because we do not yet have resurrected glorified bodies which will never suffer disease and decay and even aging and certainly not death ever again. Yeah? We don't live in the perfect. We live in the partial. Where we're calling in, the, we're tasting the powers of the age to come. We're calling in the God of heaven to help us in the here and now, but we can't have it all now. That's, that's where some these evangelist kind of preachers, sorry, TV preachers have just got it wrong. They talk as if you can have everything now. You can't have it all now. You're not, you're not equipped for it. You can't bear it. You cannot be filled with all the glory of God now. You could not endure all his fire and all his light in your being now. But we will. In the eternal kingdom. We live still with mixture. We pray, but we do not win every battle. We ourselves are still prone to weakness, aging, and death. There are words towards the end of the book of Revelation that describe the kingdom to come. They're not about us now. Let me read them to you. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. We heard that read in a program Carol and I watched last night. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things have not yet passed away, but they will. We live in, a, in anticipation of a day and an age yet to come, but we taste of it now. We do not yet have resurrected bodies, but these frail bodies can know the power of God healing us and restoring us and equipping us and strengthening us. And to get to the eternal kingdom, we've got to do life. We've got to endure in faith. We've got to continue to love and serve and obey our King Jesus. But we actually also go through trouble. Some people talk again as if Christians should never see any trouble. They're like Job's comforters. You must have done something wrong because God wouldn't do this to you. He wouldn't let it happen. What nonsense. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have a jolly nice time, really. It'll be absolutely pucker. In the world, you will have tribulation. There's not many TV preachers who are going to preach that verse today, are they? In the world, you will have tribulation, but be a good cheer. I have overcome the world. In other words, implying, so will you if you stick with me. Amen. Here is it, whoever comes to the world, the one who has faith in Jesus. 1 John 1, or 1 John 2. In the world, you will have tribulation. You don't want to put that in your fridge door, do you? But you really ought to, because otherwise we get a warped view of what life is like. Trouble comes. But be a good cheer. Jesus will take you through. In Acts 14, Paul and his friends with him, it says in Acts 14, 21, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And you think, well, I'm not encouraged by that. Well, that was encouraging. It was encouraging. Because when trouble comes, you think, it's okay. It's part of the journey. God will take us through it. We're told to expect it. We're going to endure it. We're going to come through it. Passing through the waters, going through the fire. The Lord is with us. He'll bring us through. So we are praying and working now for his kingdom to come. Increasingly in this age, but then completely in the end of the age. His eternal kingdom is our future inheritance. Let me just read some scriptures to you. Matthew 5, verse 3. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 25, verse 34. The king will say to those on his, on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You know, it's all prepared, but the books were opened and now it's happening. And in Matthew 13, verse 40, it says that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather out of the kingdom, his kingdom, all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. This is the wheat and the tares. Uh, parable, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Do you fancy shining a bit more brightly? How bright is the sun? That's the promise to those who love Jesus and join in faith. They will enter into his kingdom. And then in Luke 12, just the last one there, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's what God wants for his children to inherit his kingdom through Jesus forever. Christians live now in the kingdom of God's Son, but we cannot have it all now. We have been transferred from the dominion and slavery to Satan to the kingdom of Jesus, says in Colossians. We've been moved from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. But that kingdom is not yet complete, finished. When he completes his mission, which is to seek and to save that which was lost, reference to last week, and the last person for whom he effectively shed his blood has been brought into the family of God, then the end will come. Let me take you to a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? It's about... it's a whole chapter about the resurrection, the resurrection day, and the resurrection to come. And when, he's, when Paul's written and explained about the resurrection on the last day, he then says this, then comes the end. We thought the resurrection was the end, but no, he says the, the resurrection is part of the end, but this is now the final transaction. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power because the kingdoms are now gone forever. All the national boundaries, all of the things are gone. For he must reign. Jesus now must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. That's the quoting from the Old Testament. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. God the Father is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. When Jesus has completed his reign, as if you like to think of it this, like this, the Prince Regent of God the Father, and when he's gathered all his people to himself, and he's lost not one of them. Then he hands the kingdom as a completed thing back to God the Father. And we inherit our Father's kingdom. Meanwhile, every enemy has to be brought under the feet of Jesus. Every nation and every person must hear the gospel. And those who do not submit to the Lord Jesus in faith, in life, will bow the knee in judgment on Resurrection Day. We are already, if we're Christians... In his kingdom. And we have these promised, tremendous prophets repeated again and again in scripture of inheriting his kingdom. But his kingdom is not yet complete. It's not our time for rest, but for work. Including the great work of prayer. Which we'll be doing on Friday. Plug. 8 till 10. Plug. How do we pray? Our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, as much as we can take, as, 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 as we, we dare to hope for more of his kingdom, finally, completely, when Jesus returns. I want to ask you, are you a citizen of God's Son? I didn't say, 
are you a Christian? Because that can mean a number of things in a way. The danger is, for some of us, many people growing up here in this country nowadays have no Christian culture at all. We're kind of gone. It's, they talk about a post-Christian society. Some people were born into a culture which is still very deeply uh, kind of Christian in culture. Well, however you grow up, there's a point at which you need to become a Christian by conversion, being born again, and by conviction. This is now what you believe and live by. It becomes the, the prevailing influence in your life. This faith in Jesus is the number one priority. Conversion, conviction, Christian. Not, oh, I grew up that way. No, you became a follower of Jesus. Like we were saying on Friday night, you choose to be a kingdom man or a kingdom woman. To set your heart to follow Jesus as king. It's a growing kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. It must grow and advance in the world. It must also grow and advance in me and you. Poor grammar, but there you go. His kingdom must increase in us. When it does so, we grow up. We become more mature, more responsible, more obedient, less fiddling around with nonsense and things which are harmful to ourselves and others. We grow up because we're pursuing something. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the things you need will be added to you. Food, housing, clothing, so Seek first the kingdom of God. Priority. So let me give you some headlines to wrap this up. There's just one screen going to stay there for the next five, ten minutes. First of all, Jesus is king, is Lord. We used to sing a lot of songs like that, very simple songs, you know. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. You know, very, very simple song. But we, it's kind of gone out of fashion to be saying that. You know, we want Jesus to be our, the lover of our soul and we want Jesus to, to show us his kindness and uh, wonderful things, you know. Again, very moving hymns about those things. But Jesus is king. You don't make him king, you just own up to the fact he is. You don't elevate him one bit. You just bow to his elevated position as the one who has rulership over you. He's king, he's lord, over me, over my family, over his church, over this nation and the nations of the world. That's why we're appealing to the Lord Jesus to do something for our nation. We're appealing to the higher authority than... Well, let's not go there. <laughs> they don't have authority until December the 13th, do they? Let me just give this to you. I thought it the other night. I wrote it down, and sometimes I have to go with what I believe the Lord tells me. You do not have to be a Satanist to serve Satan. You just have to buy in, sell out, or just give in to the values and ways of this world, and you are serving the one who is called in Scripture the God of this world. It's a, it's a radical change, a choice, a conversion. It comes out of conviction that you do not serve the God of this world. You do not follow the ways of this world, but you serve and follow and obey Christ. It's a change. It's a decision. As Christians, we live for Jesus. We swim against the tide of the world. We are counter-cultural. We follow and obey him and um, some people will deeply dislike us for it. That's okay. That goes to the territory. But we are following him, serving our king. Then Jesus rules me. How does he do that? By his word. Some people like to plead the blood, you know, and some early Pentecostals used to do it again and again. In fact, they used to chant the blood, the blood, the blood. I'm, whoa, 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 this is weird. That is to misunderstand Scripture. We are cleansed and washed by the blood of the Lamb, but you know what? That's speaking about our conversion and our being made acceptable to God. 
in the process of continuing to change and grow, it says this in Ephesians verse 26, that Jesus sanctifies and cleanses his church, which includes you and I as individuals, with the washing of water by the word. It is truth that challenges and changes the way that you and I live. And some Christians need to stop pleading the blood and start obeying the word. Believe in and acting upon what he says. God calls us to responsibility and maturity. Do not say, oh there, I've, got, I've done it again, oh I'm sorry, I plead the blood. No, to learn, to grow, to change. Because grace is available to us to grow, to change, to move on. Truth and grace come to reshape us, to remake us. We're in this remaking progress of we're not what we were, but we're not yet what we shall be. But we're in a process of being changed from one measure of growth and glory to another. And God does that by his word that challenges us, that reshapes the way we think, that, that provokes us to, to examine some of the things in our own personality, in our culture, in our traditions. I thank God for the number of conversations I've had with people recently who have been saying things to me that, that, I, that I think I've been saying as well, but never mind. The Christian truth, the gospel, challenges every culture. We cannot say one particular culture is thoroughly Christian. There are things in every society which need to be thought through on the basis of does Scripture really identify that as being good or not? Yeah? We are washed by the Word, cleansed, challenged, changed by truth. Jesus said you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. Sometimes setting free is not as simple and easy as you think. You know, you're kind of holding out these shackles. You said, just there, just hit it. Don't hit me here. Hit it there, please. Yeah? There's some kind of, ooh, this is a bit scary to be set free from some things. But you've got to embrace the truth for what it is. It can be deeply challenging. Oh, I don't know if I like that. Didn't ask if you liked it. Is it true? Do you need to hear it? Do you need to respond to it? Do you need to obey it? Because the far end of that is health, freedom, blessing, through obeying the truth. Next one. No part of human life sits outside the kingdom of God and of Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no part of human life that sits outside his kingdom. Amen. You can't put a wall up and say, this is Christian, that isn't. I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll step over here and this is my Christian experience and over here is my real life experience. If Christianity isn't real life, it's not real Christianity. If faith isn't real life, then that's not real faith. If you're a citizen of his kingdom, all life is Christian. All life is holy. It's under his rule, his reign. Living 24-7 for his kingdom is normal. What, not living like that is subnormal. If you're something on a Sunday that you put away on a, a Monday, like I made put my suit away, you know, you're mistaken, perhaps deceived. Faith and obedience to Jesus is 24-7 in his kingdom. You're a kingdom man, a kingdom woman tomorrow morning when the alarm goes off. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 6.30, 6.45, whatever it is. <sighs> I'm going to work today and Jesus will be with me. Forget, forget complaining. God doesn't like complaining. He really doesn't like complaining. He doesn't like mixture. He doesn't like grumbling. So if you, if you want to kind of have a bad day, just start by grumbling. It'll give you a bad day, right? But if you, if you, want, if you want God to sort of say, good on you, I'm with you. You know, just start the day with, by confessing, I'm starting this day with the Lord. Amen. All right. We belong to him. He has ownership of us. You know, people talk about he gave his life to Jesus. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, it already belonged to Jesus, but he's, he's woken up to the fact. That's the truth of it. It all belongs to him. Not just every living being, you know, the giraffes and the llamas. And the, every human being belongs to Jesus. And every part of my being belongs to Jesus. Whether I surrender it, submit it or not, it's still his. He claims authority, he claims ownership over my mind, over my body, over my, my intelligence, my, my emotions. He claims authority and ownership over me. So whatever I give back to him, I'm only giving him what is his, what belongs to him. Whether it's myself, time, 
money, even laying down my very life. It belongs to him. This is a message that was preached very powerfully in the 1970s. Jesus is Lord. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is as fresh from the mouth of the Lord Jesus today as it was 2,000 years ago on a Galilean hillside. People like the word for today, you know, in the notes or on the Bible app or whatever. Let's look at the scripture for today. I'll give you a word that's the same word every day of your life. Today, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He'll take care of you when you seek his priorities. That word continues to the end. Jesus is king now. Kingdom life is for now, not in some future thousand-year reign. I'll explain that another day. Those who live now as citizens of heaven and servants of the king may have to endure great trials now, but they will inherit his perfect, glorious kingdom in the age to come. That is the message of Daniel 7. That is the message of Jesus to us. But do not think I can live like haphazard and wishy-washy and all over the place and then suddenly, whoa, we're getting the eternal kingdom. Because if you serve him now, you'll be rewarded then. There's a scripture that implies that some people get into the eternal kingdom as we would say by the skin of their teeth. I don't want any of you to set your mind on that. But rather, with, like with Paul's example, say, I've served him well. There remains laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which belongs to all those who serve him and love him. Pursue a good entrance. A life well lived will be a life rewarded in the last day with a glorious entrance and a rich reward to his eternal kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. I'm going to break bread. <laughs> I want to come back to the question. Are you a Christian by conversion? that you know that you became a Christian. It was a, a process of God working in you, convincing you of things, challenging you about things, but there came a time when you made a decision, I will yield myself into the hands of Christ. From now on I will follow him. And you hopefully acted it out in baptism in water as well. I need to remind some of you, you were baptized in water. You acted this stuff out. From this day forward I follow him. He's my king. So, are you a Christian, as I've defined it for you? If you've never made that decision, you've never known that switching over of kingdom from darkness to light, Satan to Jesus, why don't you call on the name of the Lord Jesus right now? Oh, Jesus, please receive me. Please take hold of me. Lord Jesus, please switch me through into being someone who belongs to you, who sees your rulership and your kind kingdom over all of my life. I give myself to follow you and obey you. I give myself to discover the truth you have in your word that will change me and shape me. Not all in one go, but through the rest of my life. I'll be in this process of learning and growing and learning and growing. Jesus. And then for others of us, the men who are here on Friday, we got a kind of a shake-up, uh, an awakening call. I'd written this sermon before I saw that, by the way. But it's so easy to drift. It's so easy to drift. The problem is we are, kind of, we, we, we are running against the wind, against the tide as Christians. If you drift, you will drift backwards. You will drift downwards. You will drift with the world. You have to actually be consciously pursuing a course to stay following Jesus. You've got to stay switched on, not switch off. You've got to stay looking ahead, not looking back. You've got to stay focused on faith in Jesus 
and not be again being lazy about it. When you do nothing, you will drift backwards. <laughs> That's the truth of it. But the Lord will give us strength for every day of our lives. Fresh grace every day to equip us, strengthen us, to do well, to live for him. Do you need to pray, any of us this morning, do we need to pray for fresh grace today? For forgiveness for having drifted, maybe? And say, Lord Jesus, you're the, your king, your king. I do belong to you. All I am and all I have is yours. I'm sorry for letting these things go so far out of my mind that the way I've, I've lived, I, I live has, has got rather changed from how I used to as a Christian. Please, Holy Spirit, come and work in restoring grace and reshape my heart again, refocus me again on the truth I do understand, I do know, and help me to live it for the honor of Jesus. Father, if you've heard some of these prayers coming from our hearts this morning, let them be like incense that came off the altar. A sweet smell in your ears. You're, you're, you're not angry with your saints. You're delighted that they come to you and ask again for your help, your grace. Reaffirm again their commitment to you to follow Christ, who you appointed as their king. We thank you we have a good king. We have a loving king. We have one who reigns over us for our good and over the whole of his church for its good. So Lord Jesus, again, we submit ourselves into your hands, setting aside the, the values of this world and the false calls of uh, worldly society. We say only you, Lord, have the words of eternal life. When you speak to us, it may be challenging, but it brings us into life and health and everything that's good. Father, we submit ourselves under your hands in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 We're going to break bread together. Four people are going to come out and serve us and help us with that. And Angie.